Thank you. Everybody take a deep breath. We have a deep passage that we're stepping into. And I wanna begin this way. I'm gonna ask you to do a thought experiment, thought experiment with me. I want you to imagine something in your God-given imagination to put yourself in a setting, a scenario, and then to choose one of the scenarios I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you two. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you two scenarios. Imagine this. I'm gonna ask you, which would you choose? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, so breathe a sigh really. You know, it's not like, hey, this many people chose. No, it's just gonna be a mind exercise, but it's important that we do it. Imagine scenario one is tomorrow you have a wedding reception to attend. And you think about what that wedding reception will be. I mean, it's gonna be food and drinks and dancing and toasts, joy, tears of gladness. I want you to imagine another scenario. What if tomorrow you have a funeral to attend? You'll be at a graveside tomorrow. There'll be loss and mourning and sadness. There'll be tears there too, but it'll be tears of great loss and sadness. So, so in your mind's eye, you got these two scenarios. Which, which would you choose to, to, to go to? Just think about it for a moment. See, I would choose the, I would choose the wedding reception 11 out of 10 times. Meaning I would never choose that. Why would I choose that place where it's death and darkness and it's loss that's overwhelming? I would choose the wedding and Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, would tell me you would make the wrong choice 11 out of 10 times. In Ecclesiastes 7.2, he says, it's better to go to a house of mourning and to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Solomon says, choose the funeral every time. He says this for at least two reasons. Because you're all gonna be at one, one day in the grave. Death's inevitable. Learn from it. That's the second part. Death, secondly, is the is perhaps life's greatest teacher. What you learn at what you learn at death, you will never learn at a feast. In fact, you really learn it nowhere else but at the graveside. We may never choose that, but John's chosen it for us. So we today in our text remain at a graveside. And at this graveside, as Solomon says, there's something for us to learn. And I really do believe this. It's the greatest truth in life. It's the most important truth in life. Not just the most important truth that John's teaching in his gospel. It's the most important truth from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This is the truth. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. We'll see that in a moment. That's why we broke this passage into two Rob covering the first part last week, and we're gonna pause this week to stay at the graveside. Verses one through 37, Rob last week walked us through this. You know the story. Uh, Chris has already introduced it to us. Uh, Jesus finds out Lazarus, his friend, is ill. Rather than going to see him immediately, he delays. And in the delay, Lazarus dies. 
And, and, and the, you know, the question is, couldn't he have kept him from dying? And of course, we know the answer to that is yes. Could not the one who healed the blind man kept this man from, yes, he could have, but he didn't. And Jesus gives <clears throat> kind of a cryptic reply as to the reason. He says, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, death isn't the end of this story. That's not where it terminates. <clears throat> It is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, God's love can be confusing. And I love the way Rob outlined that for us. Because you go, what? Wait, you say you love him and you let him die? And Rob reminded us, remember these three things about God's love? It confounds, it confronts, and it, it always comes near. Pain and grief are not antithetical to God's love for us. <clears throat> and it's tied here to the glory of God. Jesus, it's that I might be glorified. And this is so important. It means that death, this is strange, death in this life that you and I are living now, death plays a part in revealing God's glory most fully. This is the lesson at every funeral, including mine and including yours. The text itself, look up here on the screen, you'll see it's two, like it's two things moving in opposite directions. Verses 38 to 44, it's like resurrection of Lazarus. But then you get 45 to 57 and it's like death of Jesus. It's like two ships crossing and they're going in opposite directions. There's a reason for that, and we'll unpack that as we walk through. Let's start with the, <clears throat> the resurrection of Lazarus, verses 38 to 44. I'm just gonna pick verses at a time and make a few quick comments as we move through it. <clears throat> start in verse 38, God's word to us today, continuing the story. <clears throat> John writes, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, I wanna stop there because when I say, the text says, tomb, cave, stone laid against it, what does that make you think of? Say it out loud, somebody. Jesus, yes, yes, Easter. Yes, yes, we're gonna see the linens later, you know? So it's like a foreshadowing. Immediately we go, wait, 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 we're reading this. <clears throat> that's Easter, that's, that's speaking of Jesus's coming death. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> Do you know in our study through John, it's taken us, well, we've gone up through 11 chapters. We've covered three and a half years of Jesus's life. And right here, from where we are on, we're gonna cover 10 chapters, y'all. And it's only gonna cover a few weeks of his life. This is a significant turning point. It's like, <clears throat> it's like John saying, get ready. Things are we're coming to the climax of the story. The most important part. He foreshadows it, <clears throat> but he also, for, he also shows us in another way. Do you remember the book itself contains seven signs? <clears throat> so these signs, each one is a sign pointing to something else. Jesus does a, a miracle. He feeds the 5,000. It's pointing to something about Jesus. This is the seventh sign. What does seven mean in the Bible? What, what does it mean? Completion, whole, <laughs> This is the one. 
from which all the others derive their significance. John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved again. And so when you say again, well, yes, again, because you go throws us back to verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's one Greek word and translators have had trouble with it for centuries, including our own that translate this Greek word here, deeply moved. The Greek word itself, uh, it, it, it means, it, it, it's a picture of this, a, a horse snorting in anger or rage. B.B. Warfield puts it this way, I think he just summarizes it so well. What John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, He was grieved, but of inexpressible anger. True, he did respond with tears, but the emotion which tore at his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Just, i.e., righteous rage. And we, we, we get this. You know, the translators didn't want to, can't see putting that, you know, an angry Jesus and a weeping Jesus. They didn't want to put that together. So we go with deeply moved, but it's just rage. Tim Keller, I think, says it well. He says, if you raise a child and try to give that child everything and you find out someone is trying to seduce that child into taking drugs, you get mad. Anger, a sign of love. The more love, the more anger when what you love is threatened. I wanna add the qualifier. Righteous anger is a sign of love. When you see something's wrong, when you look at something and go, that's not the way it should be, we feel anger. Righteous anger. Y'all, if there were ever a human being who could look at any situation and, if, if, and, 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 and look at it and go, that is not right, who would feel that deepest? What human being who's ever lived? It's not a trick question. Would it not be Jesus? Can you imagine the fury at which he comes? Fury at what? I I really do believe this. Fury at death. It is the antithesis of God's intent for humanity. Continue with verse 39 and 40. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? Couple things here. Four days in the grave. He was anointed with oint, you know, perfume, the cloths that they would cover him with, soaked in it. But for the Jews, this was not embalming. The Egyptians embalmed the body to preserve it. The Jews put a boatload of good smelling stuff on it to keep the stench down of the rotting body. Four days in that heat, 
she was right, it would, the stench, it would knock them over once the stone, it probably, it would have been leaking out, but it would knock them over, removing the stone. Jesus reminds her of her belief. Did I not tell you if you believed? And by the way, back in verse uh, 27, she said, yes, Lord, I believe. And I think there's a lesson for us in this. She said, yes, Lord, I, I, I do believe. Well, now the moment of truth has come. Jesus says, move the stone. And she, you know, we know now she was thinking not so much she was gonna raise him now, but she was thinking perhaps of the future resurrection that all Jews believed in. So Jesus invites her to take her belief and act on it. It's like, it's like, did I not tell you you would see the glory of God if you believe? She says, I believe. Well, now Jesus is saying, okay, remove the stone. And I, and I just pause on that to say to us how much of God's glory we miss. We don't, we don't get to see it. It's just, it's just James's book, Faith Without Works is Dead, that when we say we believe that biblical belief is always connected to biblical obedience and that the experience of God, like I can experience God's presence, his power, I'm seeing him at work. That's tied to our, our trust, not a trust that's just vocal, but a belief that is visceral and volitional and we trust. There may be someone in the room online, I don't know, but perhaps... God is saying to you, roll the stone away. Verse 41 to 44, so they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The Greek is actually Lazarus, out here. <laughs> like, like commanding you know, your dog to do something. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. He only speaks you all for the benefit of the crowd. He wants them to see that this seventh and final sign reveals who he is in a way that's just indisputable. One commentator put it this way, and this is rather important. (laughs) He speaks out loud and says, talks to his father because he wants them to understand that he, Jesus, is an obedient son of the father, not just a miracle worker. Right, because the whole gospel, what has he been saying the whole time? I and the Father are one. The Father has sent me. I'm the Son sent from the Father. So this, this miracle, he prays out loud. So they'll, they'll make, oh my gosh, he's talking to his Father. And he raises Lazarus from the grave. It should prompt us, I hope, to think about, <clears throat> you know, it's been several months now, but back in chapter five, verse 28, it says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming. Jesus says, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. It just happened. <clears throat> or just, just some weeks ago, we're in the shepherd sheep passage. 
my sheep hear my voice and they follow. I mean, this is, this is what's happening here. <clears throat> we do note some differences between Jesus's resurrection and Lazarus's because they are very, very different. Jesus is raised from the grave. We'll get to that here now in a few months. <clears throat> You'll recall though from Easter that his, the linens that wrapped Jesus were still laying on the, on the bedrock that the body was laying in like a cocoon or something. And then the wrappings around his head were folded up neatly and laid right here. And then we see this resurrection and, and not, not to be silly, but, but he comes out like a mummy because he's still wrapped. He's got straps of linen hanging off him. He's like, turn that dude loose, unwrap him, you know. <clears throat> What's the difference? Jesus raised, resurrected in an imperishable body, never to die again. Lazarus raised in a perishable body and Lazarus was raised to one day die again. <clears throat> Here's where we, we're gonna make this shift where it's like the resurrection of Lazarus and then it's going the other way like, oh, the death of Jesus. It's like, and they're right together. I'm gonna read 45 to 47 all the way through. Just stay with me. <clears throat> it says, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief, <clears throat> the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come <clears throat> and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die, <clears throat> that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, that's you and me. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the final Passover celebration, y'all. This is Jesus into Jerusalem for Passover <clears throat> to die. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. <clears throat> I've got arrest him circled in my Bible and I've got an arrow drawn all the way up to verse 53 to put him to death. <laughs> so as pilgrims were gathering in Jerusalem, y'all, it's kind of like they were wanted signs everywhere. Not literally, but in the sense of, <clears throat> hey, if you see this man, tell us that we might arrest him, arrest him, that we might kill him. This, this last sign, y'all, it's like the tipping point. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. And the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, these are the 70 el ruling elders of Israel. This is the, Isra this is the Supreme Court of the nation. 
both religiously and politically, they've had enough. This sign did it. He's gotta die. I love, I love John gives us this insight that the high priest that year literally looks at the group and says, look, this one man's gonna die for the nation. That's exactly what he's gonna do. And it says he didn't even do that on his own accord. It's like God used the high priest to say what God wanted said. And honestly, I sit back from the story and I keep going, who's in charge here? I mean, oh my gosh, God's in charge. We get some insight on the religious leaders and their motive. I think this can be helpful to us in our own journey of faith. Look again at verse 48. we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now think about that. What was going on in them? The decision was driven by fear. And it was a fear of loss. Loss of position and power. Loss of their place in the temple. I mean, it's the meeting place of God, but it was also there. It's like their identity and what they did there. We'll lose it all. We've already noted several weeks back, they, they, are, they are in bondage to Rome. That's a fact. They could only do what Rome allows them to do. <clears throat> but here we get this picture. They preferred to be in bondage to Rome because of the position and the power that it afforded them. <clears throat> they preferred to be in bondage to Rome because... <clears throat> They liked the life they had, the roles they had in this life. And rather than throw them under the bus for that, I really kind of pull out the mirror and go, man, let me look at myself and look at us. And how many of us, when, when, when the, the Christ's call is follow me, how many of us are, are, are quick to go all in? Or how many of us are, Okay, but that means I lose this? Well, if I follow you, I'll give up this? I mean, Jesus, to follow you with all that I am and all that I have means I won't have? You know what I mean? I do that. We do that. And yet when we see, clearly we understand that whatever we lose in following Jesus is only that which was robbing us of life, not giving us life, Because life is Jesus, fully, wholly, and completely. This is where we begin to grasp, I think, why, why, why death and resurrection and death and resurrection and God's glory, it's like it's all right here. You gotta go back to the beginning of the story to fully get this, I think. And I don't mean the beginning of John, I actually mean the beginning of the story. So you gotta go back all the way to the beginning of the story, Genesis. That God created the world and all that is in it, put humanity on this planet to be in relationship with him and live in a relationship with God wherein God is God. And and Adam and Eve would live by faith and trusting what God said was best and true and right. But Adam and Eve, we know this, they said, 
I think we can do it better on our own. They did. And what happens when Adam and Eve sin? What comes into the world in that moment? Death, separation. And the devil, of course, uses death as one of his greatest weapons, even to this day. And death itself reigned all the way until, we're not gonna get here for a few weeks, until Jesus, right, defeats death. The raising of Lazarus is a preview. It's a foreshadowing. That's why I asked you earlier, doesn't that make you think of the grave of Jesus? Yes, because the sign is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus dies and rises from the grave, oh, death is defeated. See, because <clears throat> death can only hold sin. Jesus has no sin. But he dies, he dies, yes, because he took our sin upon himself. But having satisfied the payment and the just righteousness against sin, <clears throat> death had nothing to hold. Jesus bursts from the grave. And Jesus says, anyone who trusts in me that what I did for, that what I did, I did for you. <clears throat> oh, you'll burst from the grave too. Death can't hold you if you're in me. Now, all of that happened. Jesus is death, crucifixion. All that happened. Again, you see it in the story. Right at this moment, when Jesus raises Lazarus, he's signing his own death warrant. That's what just happened. He raises Lazarus. We've had enough. He's got to die. And the story from here on goes into the Passion Week. <clears throat> it's, it's so crazy to think about that out of love for Lazarus, he raises him. But that love costs him his own life. We said earlier, you know, they asked the question, could he not have opened the eyes of the, he who opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Yes, of course he could. <clears throat> but I wanna suggest the real answer, Jesus has something far, 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 far more important and significant to do than keeping Lazarus from, from dying <laughs> that day. His purpose is not to keep people from dying. Because we inherit our, Forefathers' sins, Adam and Eve's sin, we, 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 we carry it. <clears throat> We're gonna die. But Jesus comes so that when we die, death won't hold us. It won't hold us. It can't if you're in Christ. And in this, look, in this, God is glorified. What do you mean glory? It's like, God's love is manifested. God's grace is displayed. We didn't deserve it. His justice and righteousness shine. That's why I said earlier, the message right here, <clears throat> Jesus conquers death 
It's the message of the whole Bible. Because in that way, he brings us back to our Father. <clears throat> well, the, this, the, that's the story. That's the, 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 the text itself. I have struggled a ton with kind of how to land it. Where do, where do we go in terms of application? And in, in my mind has gone to strange places. I've thought a lot about death as in, around this passage. <clears throat> and I want to offer these thoughts to you. You know, up until about really the last century, <clears throat> death was as common as going to the grocery store. That, that people grew up in communal contexts and there was always death. Grandparents dying, illnesses, taking people, infant mortality. It, just, it, was, just, it was just normal that a family, <clears throat> children, all the way up would be around death. In the last century, particularly in the West, <clears throat> death has been shoved to the side, buried, pun intended. Uh, medical, uh, technological advances, you know, they're good. <clears throat> but, they, but in a sense, they have us pushing death further away. I'm gonna push it out as far as I can. And please hear me on this. I I'm, 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 wanna be so careful that I go, I mean, I don't wanna glorify death. <clears throat> Jesus is furious at it as, would, as we should be. But there's just something askew. This is where my mind went. Just something askew in this way. If the scripture tells us anything, it tells us that <clears throat> Jesus lived and died and was raised, that we might spend an eternity with him in that place as God intended where there is no death, no dying, no mourning, no tears. And if that, and if that place, and it is a place and it's in relationship with, is not infinitely better than the best life we could have on earth, then do you say something's askew? And yet we, we would pursue, and again, don't hear me on this because I know in our body, people, you know, die, we had a memorial yesterday, people are dying. I want to live, we want to live and use medical and technology and all those things to, to live, we can do that. But you understand what I'm saying. Let's just think about this, that we, we, we wanna delay death. And is there not something just a little quirky when you stand around and go, but, but the other side of that death is exactly what I've been made for. <clears throat> I'm gonna invite the worship team up. We're gonna conclude with a song, but I'm gonna <clears throat> end with just, just two, pick, two more pictures for you to consider in terms of application. strange where my mind went around this, but my mind went on this that, and again, I think it's because of the reading I do. It's funny that when, you, you know, when you're reading, those things stick with you. <clears throat> but I've been doing a lot of reading coming up related to some things we're gonna be doing here in the fall. And, and um, it's an inarguable fact that people, a generation really behind us, I'm 63, so a generation behind me, a generation or two behind me, the, the number of people kind of deconstructing their faith is just on a rapid rise. Now, 
Now, people have always deconstructed their faith, i.e., people have always wrestled with, is it it's my mom and dad's faith? I don't think I believe it anymore. <clears throat> and then they work through that and they may come back to faith or they may not, okay? So that's always happened, but it is in rather large numbers and <clears throat> I certainly see it. Uh, I just see it a lot more, quite frankly. <clears throat> and so I've thought about how do, we, how do we help those who are struggling with their faith how will we help a generation behind us? You know, I'm speaking at my age. <clears throat> know that it's true. The gospel's true. And I thought, and it struck me, it may be not in how we live, but in how we die. I don't want to be, I don't mean to be morbid. And please hear me when I say this, y'all. I don't want to die. <laughs> There's, I, I want to be with my family, right? Don't you, your kids, you don't want to miss, you don't want to miss out on that, so I, I get that. But man, there's a tension. I want you to know that you, you, you cannot die well, okay? I, I really, you can't die well if you haven't lived well. So, so there's, the, there's the living well that leads to the dying well. how we die may, may be the greatest apologetic for our kids, for their friends. I've got two images in my mind I told you I was gonna give you, and this will wrap up here. Two images about my own death and how I might, what I might communicate in my death. The first is a person on vacation. It's the best vacation ever. But it's coming to an end. And there's just this sense of, this is so good. I want it to go on longer, but it's coming to an end. And, and so you kind of go back to life and it's, wah, wah, you know, it's just not what that was. And I know it's, you can go take this too far, but it's like, is that, is that how I view the end of my life in heaven, that this was the best thing? But I'll go on. That's one image. The other picture that came to my mind <coughs> was um, all our kids are grown now, 27, 24, 22. They're grown, but was uh, watching them on the stairs at Christmas when they're little. You guys do all this stuff, you know. And so they're there and, and uh, they're sitting on the stairs waiting before they come down to the big reveal, you know. See everything, you know, mom, dad got, they got for Christmas. And they are on that, those stairs, right? And it's like, they just, they just were ready to go and explode. And that's another picture. At death, this is the picture I want. And I don't know that I'll be able to say it. I don't know how I'm gonna die. But the, what I would want is for my wife, if, if I go before them, I don't know. My wife, my kids, I, I would want them to see in my eyes, somehow see in my eyes that I've not been waiting 364 days for the presence 
but I've been waiting my whole life for what's beyond the grave. And I'm one breath away. Now, even when I say that, I get emotional because I'd also want to go, no, I want to be with you. But is this not what the Bible teaches us and tells us? I want you to close your eyes for a moment and ponder. Let's just sit for a moment. What do you want your life, your eyes, your words to communicate at your own death? stand together. Lord, what a weighty passage. And it's got the right kind of weight. <clears throat> In that moment when each of us die, the light, the light of life goes out and death proclaims victory, may our eyes gospel. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave so that he himself would be put in the grave. Because Jesus, you're the only human being whom the grave cannot hold. And when we're in you, it will not, it cannot hold us. And in this, oh God, you are glorified. Indeed, you are magnified. And we praise you.